The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. And our scripture reading this morning is from Mark 8, 27 through 9, 1. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Jay Bear. Well, it's good to see y'all again, and uh, so glad you're here with us this morning, and um, hope it's been a a sweet week for you in some ways. Um, Even with the snow and the ice, hopefully you were able to enjoy it in in some regard. You know, uh, some time ago, my family, uh, my mom and stepfather came in town to uh, visit, and you know, when people come in town, it was springtime, springish, and uh, I thought, man, what do we want to do? So we love going to Cheekwood. I don't know if you've been to Cheekwood before. It's a, a really cool place here in town. It uh, has botanical gardens and does a lot of things at Christmas and, you know, a lot of art and those kind of things. It can be fun. They had an, a, a specific exhibit, and I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, why not take my parents to it? It was called, How Do You See God? And... Uh, you know, as art can be, it was highly subjective. You know, you walk in, there are multiple pieces all throughout uh, this large uh, uh, building. And, um, and as I walked through, different things, you know, it was obvious, you know, how do you see God? Different people put up things. There was one, there was a medicine cabinet, you know, that you can kind of draw. Some of them were, are more obvious, you know, God is some sort of a uh, healer, right? Uh, there were other things like fish, like, you know, little plastic fish nailed to a board, uh, you know, drawing symbolism out of the Bible. But then there were some I just, I had, I really was trying to figure out, like, and maybe some of you who are deeper artists than myself could probably pull out, but there was like a, a, a television with just people in a background standing, and then there'd, you'd hear these shots fired, and then everybody would just fall over. Uh, it was like, oh, okay, uh, that's startling. Uh, and then there was one where 
was a balloon with this uh, sheet stretched back and then this face being projected on it that just kept talking in really, uh, uh, you know, unintelligible language. And I thought, I, it creeps me out. I mean, maybe that's what you're thinking. You know, maybe that's the subjective piece. Um, so, but it was interesting. It wasn't, it wasn't, the, uh, it wasn't so much the best of uh, are my, my favorite exhibits they've done. But it did draw up a lot of things for me, and particularly one question in particular. With all of the question of how do you see God, and that question is, is in art, it's in a lot of ways, it's in funny ways, you know, uh, the great Ricky Bobby, Will Ferrell's character, he likes to pray to the baby Jesus the best, right, uh, at the dinner table, um, because that's the Jesus he likes the best, as he says, right? We all have that, Okay. But here's the real question, and Jesus asks it here. He presents it. Who do the people say that I am? But no one actually turns around and says, Jesus, who do you want us to say that you are? What if the exhibit was that? See, because it isn't that revelation. Imagine if we did that with any, any of our friends. We're going we're gonna to decide what you, we want you to be for us. Instead of asking, who do you want to be to us? Jesus, who are you? This is why Jesus asked the question, who do you think that I am? Because not just the answers they give here, but it's also the disciples embedded in this that think they know who he is and they still don't. Even after Peter says, you're the Christ, and you think, oh, he's got it. Good job, Sunday school answer, Peter, way to go, right? But he still misses it. Right after he's called Satan, wow. Something more is going on in this passage. Christianity is all about following someone. And if you don't really know who you're following, that can be a real scary thing. Mark wrote this gospel in the 50s, 60s AD. And ironically enough, following Peter, drawing from Peter's memoirs. So Peter is feeding him this story of his own crying out and rebuke. And what's interesting about this is this is the passage, the watershed passage in the book of Mark, which if you're a person, a few words, Mark is your gospel because there's only 16 chapters, shortest one written. Everything is asking the question, who is this man? Who is Jesus? And when you hit chapter eight, this is the watershed moment. Watershed, if you're unfamiliar, you may know the term where it comes from is in the Rockies, divides or mountainous regions. When water hits a certain line in a certain place in a region, it goes to one side or the other. This is that passage. Who is this man? Is Jesus this or is he this? What is he? And this is the passage. Who is Jesus? And he asks them. So we're going to look at this in two crucial things and how it's answered. One is in Jesus' cross, and the second thing is our cross. So what Jesus' cross, his, his death that he proclaims, and then second is our cross. We're going to look at this passage in those two parts as we break this up. <clears throat> and as we start in Mark uh, 8, 27 to 30, it really gets into that question, who do the people say that I am? Right? There's an ancient understanding here that Jesus is trying to draw out. And Peter says, <clears throat> who people say I am? They told him. These are the disciples. John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. He asked him, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you're the Christ. 
And he strictly charged them to tell no one. Now, it's interesting he asked this because right before this, as we looked at some last week, he was in a Greek area. And in that area, centuries ago, Elijah performed a very similar healing of what he just performed. And even in Malachi, it was said that in an Old Testament prophetic book, it said Elijah was going to return. So some people thought, man, Elijah's back. He performed the same healing, same region. Some people thought John the Baptist resurrected. John the Baptist was beheaded in this. He was the forerunner of Jesus, proclaiming, Jesus, here's Jesus, here's Jesus. And he was killed. And some thought, well, he's going to, this is him. He's back. He wasn't really killed. He came back to life. Some thought one of the prophets, it said in Deuteronomy, one of the oldest Old Testament books, that there are going to be these major, this major prophet to come. Maybe he's one of the prophets. Others thought, even in this Greek region, maybe he's this, this divine kind of encounter. There were a lot of temples to the god Pan, you know, the flute playing Pan. Also, and even more so, the emperor at this time was starting to have temples built around him, Caesar. And he was even called divine. See, the, the, the word Christ, meaning Messiah, wasn't just like his last name. It actually meant his, a title of messiahship, anointed one in Aramaic, Messiah in Hebrew. Greek was Christ. And there were a lot of people that came and claimed to be a Christ. And what were they looking for? See, what were the disciples looking for? What were they hoping? They were looking for someone to come fight the battle that they could not win, particularly against Rome. I don't know if you're, uh, I'm a Marvel nerd. I don't mind saying it. I enjoy all the superhero stuff. Maybe you like it. Some people, I thought, let's talk about Watershed. I find people either really like it or hate it. Like, they're like, man, I don't care about this. Or they love it. Uh, you know, it's, it's permeated our culture. <clears throat> but it's, it's a longstanding thing. The comic book tradition, the whole idea of superhero, it's been around for a long time. And one of the lines from the Avengers that, that look, that there's like, what, 26, I think I, just, I watched, by the way, during the pandemic, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that thing. And I watched from beginning to end, I've seen them all already, but I did it again, beginning to end the series, every Marvel movie. And the, the permeated line in that is that the Avengers' purpose, especially when it gets to the very last, you know, movie, at least the last one, uh, the, the end game, was where to fight the battles that no one can fight. That's the Avengers, right? That's their whole point. The superhero context is huge. BBC put out an article uh, talking about why there's so much uh, love for superhero context and, and how much people love that story. And how, in fact, though theirs was, <clears throat> in their article was to say, why we no longer need superheroes. But if, after I read the article, it didn't really tell you why we no longer need them. It just said, it's just ingrained in us. And not just superhero, but hero. Don Miller, uh, some of you may have read, know who he is. He lives here in town now. He's, he wrote the book Blue Like Jazz some years ago. He really has moved into more of a marketing uh, area. He wrote a book called Story Brand. And what he does in that book, and we recently read it as a, a staff, what he actually does in that book is to draw out the, the common thread of story and how hero is built into us. Not just superhero, but here, the hero story. This is why every movie that has this continuous flow of a character 
who has a problem, who meets a guide, who, you know, you can kind of see that. Every movie from Star Wars on has this same theme. The movies that succeed are the ones that have this story of the hero coming in and doing what we would hope they would do. They meet a problem, whatever. And we could see their flaws and we can see their difficulties, but as long as they tie up the end in this beautiful way of solving the problem, both internally and externally, that's what we long to be. The hero thing is ingrained in us. They're looking for a hero that can fight the battle that they cannot fight. But here's what Jesus does that's interesting. Because the title of Christ is there. This, and you always wonder, why does Jesus say, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him? What a weird thing. I wonder if you read the Bible, if you've heard these passages where he'll heal someone and, uh, or go, and he'll go say, go and tell no one. And you're like, what? That, that seems completely, if you're Jesus, you want to cry, to, you want to say, here I am. But you know Why? Because they had such a misunderstanding of what Christ was. Is he Elijah? Is he John the Baptist? Is he Pan? Is he a resurrected Caesar? Is he just a God-man walking around? You see some of this problem even in Acts. When the, when the, when the followers of the apostles of Jesus are going city to city, and sometimes when they perform either miracles or they're preaching, people are like, this is Apollos' friend. Or they call out God's different little g, God's names, towards them. Because we want to take him and put him in to the place where we want him to be. Even in this, as from later on, their idea of Christ, the main theme was a coming of David's line, a king that was going to come in, a king that would separate them again from everybody else. And in the second century uh, BC, Judas Maccabeus would actually come in and people thought he was a type of Christ because he rode in with a sword to try and reclaim Jerusalem from the Romans. And he was squashed. And here they are again going, is he going to do that? And here's the problem though. <clears throat> We're wanting to designate Jesus to how we want him to fit, but he's saying, no, I'm not going to do that. And I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible says it. If any of you have that, if you ever want to read the Bible in total, read the Jesus, I know you're like, why, why read that? Read the Jesus Storybook Bible first. Bible for kids, because what it does is it gives you the thread, and all throughout it, Sally Lloyd-Jones writes, who are they looking for? That God was sending a rescuer. She uses this line, rescuer, over and over and over. What was Jesus coming to rescue us from? Rome? Pandemic? Or something more? What is Jesus coming for? Who is he? And he begins to teach him. And this is when the problem comes. Verse 31. He began to teach them <clears throat> that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rising in. And then I love how Mark puts this in there. Verse 32. And he said this plainly. Now don't you know, why would he say, and he said this plainly? Mark is wanting you to know this is an account Peter's drawing up and he said this plainly because these words landed hard on Peter's ears and everybody else. 
If you're the hero, they're looking for someone else. They think they have the guy. He just performed a healing right before this, open the eyes of the blind. It's matching up, it's lining up with not only things in the Old Testament, but he's displaying power on a level that after they've been on the boat and he calmed the storm and they're afraid, he can do anything. He can certainly, he didn't even need a horse. He can walk into Jerusalem and do what we need to do. But Jesus says, he uses a title here called Son of Man, and it's like, is this something like Yoda would say, son of man? You know, like, what, where does, what is son of man? What does that mean? He uses it a couple times here. And actually all throughout. And what he's doing, he's connecting something. He's saying, my title as Christ is connected to suffering. In fact, it goes through suffering. It has to. Son of man was a title that came of Daniel 7. Daniel is a book in the Old Testament, a prophetic book. And it was the mission, and this is what it was, the mission of the Messiah to be the suffering servant, the one who actually, his rule comes through suffering so that he can represent and identify with his people. That is, unless Jesus, unless if he doesn't go through suffering, If he isn't the son of man, that meaning connected to man, connected to us, and is rejected, then his mission is worthless. And that makes no sense. If there's one thing you didn't do if you stood up to preach in this time, was to say, I'm going to die, and and he starts later on talking about crosses. (laughs) He starts unpacking all these things. You can see the rebuke of Peter is building. Peter's like, no, 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 we want success here. What are you talking about? Anything dealing with a cross, as we even see it hanging behind me, this cross to us has become like a picture of something that we can wear, maybe a symbol that has been quite watered down in our senses. For them to see a cross, if they were to come in here, the disciples, they would be aghast at seeing that. To talk about a cross, to talk about death, to talk about suffering on this level, this is the weight of Peter's rebuke. You can see why he says he even probably told Mark and he said this plainly because he said it so plain and so clear that this is his mission to suffer and die. And later on would bring up crosses that Peter cannot believe it. Jesus, you're crazy. What what in the world are you thinking? Why would you do this? You're not here to do this because Peter is thinking of his own well-being. Peter's thinking of the mission he wants Jesus to be on. If you thumb through the Gospels, you'll see Jesus bring this up again. He'll bring up his death again. He brings it, this is the first of three times that he brings it up. And every single time, even to the very last one, the third one, It goes so over the disciples' head, they say, hey, Jesus, can I sit at your right and left hand? They start talking about power. Jesus is talking about death and suffering and crosses, and they're like, sure, yeah, can we, like, sit at your cabinet with you? Can we, like, be, like, ruling over a certain region? They're missing it. And how easy is it for us to miss it? 
His mission is so unavoidable that he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Imagine a Peter trying to recount this to Mark and having to recall being called the accuser, being called the labeled, the one who is from the beginning who deceived Adam and Eve. Why is Jesus so strong? Because anything, anyone that thwarts his mission, his reality of who he is, and that was Satan's mission, is getting in the way of what really needs to happen. What kind of person do you want Jesus to be? Who do you think he is really? Is he just there when it counts? Is Jesus somebody who helps a part of your life when you need him? Does he bring peace, maybe kind of tranquility when you want him to bring, and then you kind of move away from him when things are rough, or maybe even vice versa? Maybe when things are going well, he's just kind of just along for the ride. Is he a king that doesn't, is he a king that you want to conform to your ideas, to your dreams? Is his point and his mission to make your dreams come true? Is he kind of like a Disney World prince? And as much as that sounds trite, that is how often we can treat Jesus. We want him to bring us out of what is reality into some experience that keeps us above it or keeps us going. See, all these things can cause us to say, I, I, wait, I want Jesus, but do I really want Jesus? Where do we want Jesus and not his mission? Because everything we confess, and we talk about sin even, even if that's an antiquated word for you, when you come up against the stuff that you see in yourself and in this world, the evil, that does exist. We can't have a hero like any other that comes in thinking that he can just take it over by strength. His strength is coming through his suffering. He has to identify with ours and go below it. There's no exaltation unless he actually, his mission to the cross and to his death is completed. And we can't thwart that. And any ideas or dreams that we have that we think give us greater meaning and purpose than him are going to warp our idea of that. And this is why Jesus continues to go on to talk about not just his cross, but ours. So he says this in verse 34, in calling the crowd to him. Notice he moves even on from the disciples to the crowd. It began, don't tell anybody about this. And then he draws the crowds in. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. If anyone would come after me, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Those three things. It's not just his cross. His cross informs our life to take up the cross. To go after anything, in verse 34, when it says that, it meant you... 
It meant you take on a new life. Anything you go after, it's not just, I have a goal to get there. It's, I'm going to show everything I love is going to be focused on this thing. It's taking on a whole new identity means to go after. And what it meant to deny yourself and to lose yourself, it sounds kind of strange, but, but what it means in the Greek, it meant for a life, it meant psyche or self-identity. It means you understand your meaning. Uh, one of my favorite writers uh, and, and thinkers is a guy named Viktor Frankl. Uh, you've maybe you've heard him or heard me mention him before. He's written a lot on suffering, particularly people who came out of the Holocaust. He uh, was um, the founder of logotherapy, which is an understanding of uh, psychology connected to our suffering and meaning. But he's written a lot on the, the, the significance of meaning. In fact, he's written a book called The Man's Search for Meaning. And he really talks a lot in his work about how we make sense of self. You know, when we talk about major players from, uh, and thinkers, we think about people like Freud, and, 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 and Viktor Frankl would say this. Freud, he would say that we find meaning through pleasure, <clears throat> through things that, that and meaning in life through what brings us pleasure. Nietzsche, uh, another great thinker, philosopher, believed that we have a will for power, a desire for that. Meaning, we get meaning from power. And you can even see some of these things with the disciples. Uh, Even they say, I find meaning by sitting at your right hand or left, Jesus. But what Frankel did is he said, no, no, no. He said that we have a deep longing for meaning and we become distracted from our meaning when we start pursuing pleasure or power or other things. He said, when we start focusing our meaning on things that cannot provide it, then we become distracted from our real meaning. Okay, think about it this way. You get distracted by same meaning for your life is to, to have a specific vocation. And the more you put into it is what you get out of it. Oftentimes, maybe you spend nights at your office or in your, you know, you know so I was just talking to some students that were architecture students. <laughs> some of you have been that. Engineering students. You remember sleeping in your, in your uh, classrooms, having to do projects. What if, we, what if our meaning gets put into that? It continues to be a cycle where if your meaning, if you fail in that meaning, then do you have meaning? If you fail in what you do and what you can accomplish in your vocation, if you don't arrive at that goal, then what is your meaning? <clears throat> See, it's a distraction. See, thoughtfully getting distracted. <clears throat> See, it, it means to deny yourself that ultimate meaning in anything else other than Jesus, this is what he's saying, needs to die. That anything we put ultimate worth in, ultimate meaning in, is going to come back void. Think about the what, Lent. We just had uh, Ash Wednesday last Wednesday. And if you're unfamiliar with Ash Wednesday, it's a part of Lent, which celebrates the 40 days and 40 nights of Jesus, uh, you know, fasting in the desert. And it's, it's before, uh, before we celebrate uh, Good Friday and Easter. 
And what Lent is, and I've always found Lent to be helpful as a Protestant. It's not, I don't think it's just a, a Catholic thing. I think we need to, as Protestants, need to observe it. But oftentimes as Protestants, and maybe even if you come from a Catholic tradition, you may think of it as, I'm giving up chocolate, I'm giving up sweets or sugars, or, or, you know, or I'm giving up uh, you know, Netflix or Instagram or those kind of things. And we put those things out there. But what Lent really is for is a focus on what you really find meaning in and focusing it off those things. Because isn't it true when you skip a meal, when you skip, uh, look, when you say, I'm gonna hide Instagram off my phone and you look for it, you automatically, it triggers in your brain, oh yeah, I do this a lot more than I think I do. It draws your attention to where you find meaning, where you find worth and draws your attention back to say, where do I find my worth? To ask the question. You begin to deny yourself in small ways. See, denying self means you find your ultimate meaning in that. And Lent is helpful for that because it draws us back to the one who actually has done this. See, the question becomes, is Jesus in his worth a means to your end? See, deny yourself means no. He's not a means to my end. He is all of it. But oftentimes when we look and we ask questions, who is Jesus? He can be a means to our end, a means to our dreams, a means to our goals. See, why does he say take up the cross? Now, this is where it gets rough because Peter says, gets rebuked for, you know, him saying, are you crazy? But it means that we take up loss. It means that we encounter loss and suffering. And that we know that that is a trigger of what our Savior, it means to follow our Savior. I've read multiple articles uh, in my life, some really good, on how so many children are deprived of what it means to suffer well. That in our, uh, in, in what be it parents, teachers, and whatever it is, in our desire to uh, help our children or those younger than us that we can become obsessed with happiness. And, and I remember reading a specific article in Atlantic some time ago written by a therapist who's a mother as well talking about how she has multiple people in her office that are of a younger generation that every, they are, have everything they need, nothing is wrong, and they are not happy at all because they don't know how to encounter loss and suffering. Taking up the cross means that we, be, we embrace loss. It means we embrace it. It means we take it up to take on another mission, to take on Jesus' mission, to begin loving what Jesus loves. If Jesus is the meaning that gives us fullest meaning, then taking it up, it doesn't mean we're just, it, notice it's an action, it's a positive. It means we take up the cross, not get rid of it. To not just deny self, that's the getting ready, it's taking up the cross to take up his mission. What does he care about? What it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you're a disciple that earns something. And he's not using the cross to weed us out. You know how he, maybe some clap, some of your med students or others, and, and maybe you thought, yeah, this class is to weed out all the people that don't really want to be here or don't really want to be the, you know, a doctor or those kind of things. That's not what Jesus is doing with the cross. 
To take up your cross wasn't to weed people out or to be haphazard. It actually meant to count it joyful and honestly joyful. Count it by taking up the cross. And it also doesn't mean that if you love something too much, God is just going to take it from you. (laughs) It's not how God works. To follow him doesn't mean that he's going to say, oh, well, does it mean that if you love your, you know, the, having a spouse or your job so much, just get rid of it? No. But it does mean, have you taken up the cross to step back enough to know this is his mission to look at? It's not about fulfilling your dreams as being the best this or to be this. It's first making sense through who you are in him, to come after him. See, that's what this table means. This table means that very thing. To follow Jesus when he says, take up the cross and follow me. It means that this table and the cross go hand in hand to proclaim his death. We can't actually come to this table and partake of it and taste his death unless we've actually answered the question, who is Jesus? Are we always going to struggle with it? Sure, that's not what this table's about. This table isn't about that you're a struggler. It means you are a struggler. <laughs> it means you are taking up the cross. It means you have embraced loss and ultimately know that he has embraced all of it. When you come to this table, you taste true meaning. You're proclaiming that you follow Jesus by denying yourself. See, the thing about following Jesus is different than following a philosophy or an idea, is that those things are only as good as you put into them, right? At some point, they can't give back enough. But who never stops giving? Why do we come to this table every week? Why do we come to him all the time? He never stops. It's different than following a dream or ideal because dreams can be shattered, The only one that's been shattered here and has allowed him to himself voluntarily is Jesus. And unless Jesus shatters himself for all the dreams that Peter and we have for him, then we can't understand how beautiful the meaning is that he gives to our story. It's different than any kind of escape or high. It's different than anything else because the cost of the cross has been laid on him. We can praise God for that. Praise God that following Jesus doesn't mean it's, it's how strong your grip is or how great your thinking is or how great your discipline is. We become greater followers by faith because of the ultimate one who is never shattered except for us on the cross and has never wavered in his faith so that we in our faithlessness might have it. 